0: Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are in our Deuteronomy series, and this is part four, called A Lasting Liberation. And the question for you to get started with today is, what's a major transition that you're going through? Enjoy. Book of Deuteronomy. Let's try that again. We are in the book of Deuteronomy. And the crowd went wild. Deuteronomy is a helpful book for a few reasons. One is it's a book, is it helps us through transitions. That every single one of us goes through different transitions in life. That the book of Exodus was all about the transition of when we were in oppression, when we needed liberation when we needed God to show up in ways that we couldn't show up for ourselves. That's the power of salvation. Then it moves forward into the wilderness, a whole other type of transition in our life. After we've been liberated and freed from a certain kind of oppression, after we've been saved into something bigger, sometimes you leave that previous Egypt that you were in and now you're in the gray. You're in the in-between, the figuring it out, What is out here in the desert? It's no longer this life ahead, but I'm not quite to the promised land and this new resurrection or reconstructing or reconciliation that maybe God has for my life. And so Deuteronomy is at the cusp. It is there in the wilderness looking forward as we're about to step into the promised land for the people of God. And it's asking these deeper questions that... If you were once in the wilderness and if you were once in Egypt, what are the lessons that you learned from those two places in your life? It is metaphor that we all share in within the human experience. That in order for you to live well in the promised land, you are going to need to have learned some lessons from the difficult and transition seasons of where you came from. That we talk about it all the time in here. That we want healing and we want transformation, but the place we end up moving over to is maturity. That maturity means that I'm so living in the promised land now, that I have lessons to offer other people about their healing and their transition, right, as they were in their Egypt's and their wilderness. It's full circle, but it's the reality of how do we practice out maturity in the promised land in the same ways that we had to practice and live out our time in the wilderness and the things that we needed to know when we were in Egypt. And so Deuteronomy brings us into this larger question of maturity, and I think it goes like this, that we all wanted liberation, but now as we've moved a little bit farther in our journey, how do we live out a lasting liberation in everything that we do? So we gotta talk about a few things. We're going to talk about lasting liberation. And then we're going to talk about anthropomorphism, which I know you were all waiting for on a Sunday. Come on. And you're going to get it. You're welcome. And then we're going to talk about the Canaanites, which, yeah, you know, a good one. And then self-righteousness. And if we can understand our self-righteousness, then a little bit of self-sufficiency. If we can understand self-sufficiency, then we can talk about the actual fears that we have as human beings. Then we're going to talk about interdependence. Then I'm going to finish with a word from Caden. Sound good? Let's do this thing. I woke up this morning, and I realized that my body hated me. I was at a party last night, and I had eight tacos. Um, Thank you, thank you. You were there, and you witnessed me eating eight tacos. Now, in different seasons of our life, we ask ourselves, how far is too far? Eight is clearly that answer of probably anything at this point, right? Five through seven was already questionable. And in the amount of margaritas I needed to wash it down with, I may need to make better choices. Thank you. Thank you. The only green thing that I felt like I've had in the last week is guacamole. And I wish any of this was a joke. But how many of us have been in these seasons of life where you just kind of get into a pattern and you're eating a certain way and you're just not feeling your very best? But in my mind somewhere, what I want is this promised land of a six-pack. Anybody? (laughs) Thank you. Two six-pack fans out there. That's good. But the work that it takes to get a six-pack is that. It's work. What I want is to walk into my CrossFit gym and just lay on the floor... (laughs) and let osmosis of other people's (laughs) six-packs affect my love handles, right? Is it working? No? And I think part of that is in the physical world, we know that to be true. We know how difficult it is to pull off a six-pack. We know that I will need to drink more water than margaritas, (laughs) it's wild. I know that I will need to eat other green things besides guacamole, right? I know that I'm gonna have to do some work in the gym if that is the reality that I want. That there's a maturity that is expressed in my desire for a six pack that comes in the practicality of the work that I will put in. We know that to be true in the physical world and yet we struggle with that all of the time when it comes to our mental health and our emotional health (laughs) and our spiritual well-being. Sometimes it's harder to see the effects even though we feel those effects all of the time. And what Deuteronomy invites us into is naming that reality. If you truly want health and healing and transformation in a new good season of life, it will not happen through osmosis. It will happen because some of the work that you have put in. Just like there was work that you needed to put in when you were in Egypt, and there's work that you needed to put in when you were in the wilderness stepping into the promised land, whatever that means for your life will also take work. But a lot of us, we just want to skip over Egypt. We want to skip over the wilderness, right? We just want a first-class seat straight into the promised land. (laughs) Say amens? Yeah. I don't want to have to work for all of this stuff. But that's not the human journey. The very best and most worthwhile things that we gain in life are because we've taken lessons gleaned from these other seasons of transition. And then when we step into the promised land, we realize there's something new for us. Anthropomorphisms, I knew you were waiting on it. The Bible is written from an anthropomorphic standpoint. Anthropomorphism means the attribution of human characteristics or behavior to a God, animal, or object. What many of us have been told is that the Bible is written from this place of absolutes, it's immovable, from perfection, from omnipotence, from omnipresence, which is actually not the language that the biblical narrative gives us. The biblical narrative gives us an anthropomorphic standpoint, which is this. We experience God, and we describe our experience of that God depending on the season in life that we are in there. It might be true, that God is perfect and movable, all these other things, but you are not. So you can only experience God through this season's lens that you have on, and it is a human one. And there's a reason that the Bible provides us so many different lenses for how we experience God. There are big, beautiful statements like Colossians that Jesus came to be the first of the resurrection parade to reconcile all things, come on, right? that sounds good. And then there's the Psalms. I want to smash my my enemy's babies on rocks. (laughs) That's some real shit. Seriously. Because we experience the full range of those emotions. There are days that we are altruistic and we want all things to be reconciled. And there are other days where you're like, my boss, I swear to, right? But then what we do as human beings in our experience is we attribute these characteristics to how we encounter God. Because you can only encounter God through your experience. And the Bible's saying, of course you do that. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that reality. And you're gonna learn about the diversity of yourself and the human experience by seeing these narratives. Don't believe me? Let's play a little game. In the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In those first four books, you are never asked to love God. You are only asked to revere God. Why? Because in these early stories that we see in the Pentateuch, it's about this idea of grasping how much bigger this God could be, this one who could liberate you and free you from oppression. But if you live in this world of just reverence, that God is so much bigger, so much out there, so universal, you can't even touch this thing, it's very difficult to have relationship with this God. That you need to take the magnitude, the grandiosity of that reality, and you need to internalize it in a way that reshapes you as a human being. So in Deuteronomy, it's the first time that you are asked to love God. You may notice that in the biblical narrative, God reveals God's self to a person, then to a family, then to a clan, then to a nation. And even that's not big enough. God becomes human. That's the most anthropomorphic thing that you can do is God saying, of course you relate to me through the human experience because you're human. So let me participate in that experience with you. And even that narrative isn't big enough for the evolution of scripture Eventually, even Jesus says, I got to get out of here because something bigger is coming and the spirit of God is in all of you. Come on. But what we're taught is this thing doesn't move. It's concrete. That's not helpful for your life because you do transition. And there are seasons that you need certain language and you need to be angry and you need to be mad and you need to be joyful. And all of those feelings you may have when you were in Egypt, And there are other seasons of your life where you need to be mad and you need to be angry and you need to be joyous, but you need to experience that when you're in the wilderness. When you're transitioning, you've been freed and liberated from some things, but you're not there yet wherever there might be. And there's some seasons where you get into the promised land and you might be angry and you might be sad and you might be joyous, but you need a whole nother set of tools. It's like the Bible saying that there's a full range of this thing, baby. And we want to invite you into all of it and what it means to be human. And so the Canaanites are helpful. They're not helpful because we have Canaanites anymore. They're helpful of this reality. The Canaanites represented the practical obstacle or challenge for the people of God as they were moving into the promised land. And it's saying this, even though you're moving into the promised land, there's going to be new challenges. That's a part of the thing. And God is saying, how do I help you work through that? So Deuteronomy is brilliant. What Deuteronomy will do is will always present laws to you. A few weeks back, Brittany talked about the 10 commandments, which are just based around this idea of loving God and loving others. Uh, a few weeks ago, I talked about the Shema, which is a verse that every good Jew would repeat and recite every day, which is also just built around the idea of loving God and loving others. But the Bible never leaves you hanging on ideological belief. The Bible always wants you to invite you into the opportunity to be practice-oriented about the thing that you believe. So what Deuteronomy will do is it will say these laws about how you love God and how you love others. And then God invites us into this conversation of, what will that actually look like now that you've left Hume Lake and you've driven down the mountain and you have to go like live your faith out? <laughs> Hume Lake fans? All right, everybody. But you get it, you've had some spiritual experience, you've had a moment of transformation, you have an epiphany, whatever that thing is, and those are beautiful moments in life. That's not the same thing as living that out at your job. That's not the same thing as living that out at your Thanksgiving table with your family. That's not the same thing of being committed into a relationship with fidelity. It's just not the same thing. An epiphany is one thing, practice is something completely else. And Deuteronomy always invites us into those practices. So when we get to Deuteronomy seven through 10, All it is, is the scripture saying, how now as the, how now brown cow, (laughs) how do you now as the people of God live into this maturity in a practical way when you're going into a promised land where there's real obstacles? How do you in your real life, wherever you're at, whenever transitions you're coming through, you may have experienced some things, but how do you put these things into action so that you can have a lasting liberation here and so that you can be so mature that you can invite other people into this process later? That's what Deuteronomy invites us into. Follow along with me in Deuteronomy chapter nine. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. There are these three questions that we're gonna look at as we're in this section of Deuteronomy. And they're all these questions based on ideas that we might have, which is this reality. That sometimes you get the very thing that you want Man, if, if everything goes well and I just have that relationship, I'm, I'm going to be fine now. Man, if I just get that job, it's all going to be different for me. If I can just finally have that conversation with my parents, I know that I'll be free. And Deuteronomy is saying this, that's a part of your process. That is definitely not the end of your process. That in this process, you maybe have been liberated and freed from something And now you have to go live this thing out in a new way. And so it's going to say you're going to have some ideas along the way. Sometimes your ego is going to take charge. Your ego is going to say, I've been wounded, I've been beat down, and now I need to step into the promised land. And you know how you do that? You puff your chest up, you stand a few inches taller, and you walk confidently into a room, even though you know and no one else knows in that room, I'm actually not that confident. (laughs) And you need that. You need a little bit of that ego boost in that moment. You need to listen to a little bit more Tony Robbins in that moment. Right? And that's okay. I heard one, I was like, I don't know, I'm not sure about that, but yeah. (laughs) Insert whoever you like there. And that's a part of the human experience, that we have to step into some situations in different ways. And the scriptures are saying you're going to have those ideas in places in life where your ego is going to take charge, and the scriptures are honoring that reality—that these ideas are going to come into your head—but they shouldn't be your final ideas about how you're moving forward. So no, it is not on account. So no, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that this is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people or stubborn. Very encouraging, I know. (laughs) These passages are are really helpful though, because what it's saying is that we all participate in self-righteousness in some way. A quarter of what Jesus talks about in the Gospels is challenging the religious and their self-righteousness. Another quarter of what Jesus talks about in the Gospels is challenging the rich and their self-sufficiency. Because when you are self-righteous and when you are self-sufficient, you have everything figured out and there is no need for God. There is no faith equation in that now because you have the certitude of what you need. And so Jesus challenges conservatism And that does not mean the political conservatism. It means this, that conservatism at its purest root is that you are conserving something because that thing is working out well for you. And conservatism is generally based in power dynamics. That thing is working out for you because you're the powerful people defining how things work out. And so you want to protect that thing because it's working out for you. Religious institutions do that, economic institutions do that, family institutions do that. We all do that. There are conservative aspects of ourselves where we participate in a self-righteousness and we think that it's because of that cause and effect and I'm so pleasing to God that I'm even here in the first place. That's how we get theology like manifest destiny and sovereignty, which contribute to colonialism, right? And contribute to these different things that are part of our societies like systematic racial structures. And the reason for that is you're conserving and preserving something that works. And Jesus challenges those realities saying, I'm so glad that you got there. Puff up your chest, step into that room, but never be fooled into the reality that you got here on your own. Trust that there's a God who's been participating with you. I wanna add a note about Deuteronomy and the evolution of Jesus as we think about some of this stuff. Some people will say to me, oh, I think you're just picking and choosing Bible verses. Anyone ever get those trollers on the internet? I'm a pastor, so I get a lot of those. And sometimes my comment to that is, well, you know who else did that? Jesus. <laughs> it's truly. Jesus will never quote from Joshua or Judges. Why? Because those books are based on colonizing, right? And practices that are all about using oppression by force to win your war. Jesus will never quote from them. Whenever Jesus quotes from the prophets or from the Torah, never uses uh, verses that are about power dominance over another group. You can even read in some of Jesus' uh, first statements about Isaiah, Jesus always leaves out the parts that it's about dominance. Jesus was trying to say, we evolve in this thing and we need to have a better language about how we're understanding God. So this is a part of the process for us, is that we need to be able to understand Deuteronomy in a bigger way. And part of that is understanding self-righteousness in the ways that we participate in it. In case you were thinking that this was all about conservatives, let me make all the progressives uncomfortable in the room really quickly. In progressivism, we become self-righteous, and I'm going to say we in this, because we think that we're so much smarter than the conservatives over there now. Oh, well, now I'm woke. Some guilty nods there. Now I've gone through this thing, and those dum-dums in Toledo's don't know what. We talk this way. In the political atmosphere, we call it the coastal elites, saying that we know something that you don't know. And then what we end up doing is becoming self-righteous to the very people who are self-righteous to us. Oh, so now you don't know what I know? Look how dumb you are. Look where God got me. I can't wait till you get to that place. And we look down upon them. This is always challenging that reality, saying it is not your job to change them. It is God's job to change us. You can change yourself, you can be a part of your own process of becoming woke, but don't ever put that on somebody else that they're not in the same place of their journey as you are now. And both are self-righteous and both get in the way of us being transformed and eventually becoming mature human beings. Deuteronomy chapter 8, for when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, by the way, these are all verses that we want to say to ourselves, right? Right? I'm not seeing a house, God, I'm seeing houses. All right. (laughs) Not just one Mercedes, Lord, make it a Mercedes and a Tesla. All right. We got some amens on that. I like it. And when your flocks and herds have become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, be careful. Don't just worry about your self-righteousness. Worry about your thought that you're completely self-sufficient, that you've done all of this on your own. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God. who It's God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Do not forget that she led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was so hot and dry. She gave you water from the rock. She fed you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to your ancestors. She did this to humble you and test you for your own good. She did all this so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. It's a recognition that we get there. How many of us have been in those situations where we're in Egypt and we are pleading to God? We are praying every day, God, just see this, see where I'm right, if I could just get out of this. And a few years go by and you're over here and you know, you got the Tesla thing going on, life's looking pretty good, that relationship's happening. I did this all on my own. I can't, I can't believe I made it, I've just worked so hard. And that's a narrative of independence that our culture proclaims all of the time, which is perhaps the worst idolatry of our culture. I did this, and you're fed to believe it's all about your success. It's all about your hard work. You live in a town, we live in a town, where we love to promote people who've done it all on their own, and they're just showing off. But isn't it fascinating that we live in a town with so many independently successful people, and in our same city, people are depressed and anxious, and not satisfied, and more lonely than other parts of the country. We're from the outside, we shine, baby. But from the inside, we are hurting. We feel divided, we feel separate, we feel alone. And this is reminding you of, be careful what you wish for. Be careful if you get all of that independence that you think was gonna save your life. Be grateful for what you've been given. Be grateful that you're no longer in Egypt, that you've made it through a wilderness, that you have a chance to step into a promised land. And now go remind other people of who is the one who really frees them from those realities. That's what you're invited into. Not your own self-sufficiency, not your own independence, but something much bigger. Deuteronomy 7 says this. You may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. Remember well that the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all to Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out of. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until even the survivors who hide from you have perished. You get it. The hornet. It was a bad joke. I didn't to tell you. Uh, this verse is the opposite side of it. This verse is inviting you into your self-righteousness and your self-sufficiency is sometimes rooted out of your own ego and you're boosting yourself up because you're trying to survive in the promised land in a new way. But how many of us have been there where things are, are actually going well? You have boosted yourself up, but secretly you're insecure. Secretly, you don't know how to manage this new relationship. Secretly, the new job you got is bigger than you imagined. Secretly, you feel like an imposter. Secret, secretly, 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 we have insecurities. And the scriptures are saying, that's normal and okay too. Sometimes you're gonna step into a new land, into a new transition, into a new reality, and a new season in life. And there's gonna be Canaanites in that land. There's gonna be challenges and obstacles that you cannot overcome. And you are gonna be terrified. And that is okay. You do not have to have it all figured out. And this God will be with you in that process as you deal with these new obstacles. So whether you find yourself dealing with life because of your egos and your self-righteousness or your self-sufficiency, or you're living into fear, that's a part of the human journey. And being human is really difficult. Give yourself a little grace in this story. And then remember this, if you got out of Egypt And if you got through the wilderness and you made it into the promised land, you did not do it alone. The story of the scriptures is always a reminder of our corporate faith that we share together. It's the reality of you were never in Egypt by yourself. There were other people who were in Egypt with you. You were never in the wilderness by yourself. There are other people in the wilderness as well. And when you go to the promised land, you are not alone. And is this even greater story of interdependence? Not only were you not by yourself, but God was with you the entire time. In the difficulty, in the darkness, in the shame, in the pain, in the hurt, in the transition, in the I don't know, how do I do these things? And in the come on, here I am, milk and honey, brothers and sisters. In all of it, God was there. And that's the interdependence that we are invited into. And when we really experience maturity, when we live in the reality of that interdependence, we begin to change other people's lives as well. And I'm so proud of a community of New, like New Abbey where so many of you are practicing that maturity in the seasons of life that you're in now that there are LGBTQ brothers and sisters in the room who are leading away, who are being brave, who are puffing up their chests, who are figuring it out, who are even though that they're terrified, so that there doesn't have to be another generation that ever has to come out. that there's Asian Americans in this room who are changing the culture of our society that say, we will not be silent. We will not be quiet. We will have our voices. We will speak out against those authorities. We will be seen in this country, in this room. There's people like Brittany Barron who get to stand up here and say, I know you've never seen a female pastor before. I know you've never seen a woman of color up here before. I know you've never seen a lesbian proclaim the word of God, but you've seen it now and that will bring maturity for our world. And there's the Cory Marquez's of this world who will say, not all white men are evil, that we are allies and we are empathetic and we care and don't judge me in the same way that you've been judged because I'm trying to bring about culture and change just as much as you are, because we all have a voice in this room and that voice comes out of our maturity. And that's what we're invited into. That when your life is healed and when your life is transformed and when your life becomes mature, now you get to offer the very thing that changed you to other people. And we do that thing together. Isn't that so much more beautiful? And so as you stand right now, And would you lock arms with the people around you? If you're far from someone, get closer, lock it up however you need, get uncomfortable. (laughs) And look around. You're not alone. Each of our narratives are unique. Each of us have gone through our own Egypts and through our own wildernesses and we have stepped into new promised lands. And together through our collective story, we will tell a better good news for the world. That every single human being is made in the image of God, that they are sons or daughters of the divine, that God loves them and God enjoys them and there are zero caveats. And anytime you forget that, remember this moment. I didn't stand there alone, I stood with other people. And so my five-year-old, he just finished his last day of kindergarten this week on Thursday. Thank you. And when they're in kindergarten, they get a journal where they begin practicing their writing. And every day, they just have to make one entry. This was his first entry. It looks like Polish. There's a lot of consonants. And that's our family, clearly. And then on Friday, he came to me and he said, Dad, I made a new journal entry today. I know I'm not in kindergarten anymore, but I'm going to keep doing it. And he said, I wrote a prayer for you to preach for our community on Sunday. (laughs) It could have been awful. I don't know. But he already said it. I was like, tell me more. (laughs) And I'm just so proud that he's reminding us of the good news that we share together. And so his journal entry on Friday for all of us is, God loves us all the same amount. And God will never stop loving us and that a five-year-old has already internalized that good news and living into the maturity that many of us adults need. Praise God. Let's pray. God, thanks that we're not alone. God, thank you that we are truly not alone. And for every person in this room, God, who feels lonely man who's having to puff up their chest just to make it right now. For every person who's secretly living in insecurity and in a shadow and can't find themselves, would they be reminded God that they don't have to carry all their own weight? God, that you are gonna hold us all up and that we are gonna hold up one another. And though externally we may look different, internally we all desire the same things. We wanna be known and we want to be loved, and we want to know and love in return. God, may we continue to be a community that celebrates and lives into your good news. Would we be a community who does it through maturity and that we share this reality with the entire world. In Jesus' name, amen. You can grab a seat. Would you find those same three or four people around you And when you say, what's one practical way that you can remind yourself this week that your life is interdependent with God and others? Enjoy.